Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. I was getting my global entry and they were like, are you planning to leave the country in the next like six weeks? I'm like, oh, I'm about to go do a Codel with your dudes down in Texas. So maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. promise to not overthrow the government, I think. Not really the most reassuring answer I could give you. I might end up in Mexico, I guess. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Here with Dara Lind, and we're also doing something a little bit special, a little bit unusual today. We've got a guest, uh, the great Tommy Vitor from uh, Crooked Media and Pod Save the World. We're really excited to have him here. We're we're doing a little little cross pollination, also uh, moving on to you know taking on some slightly different subjects. So, so Tommy, uh, well, welcome to the show. Really glad to have you here. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here. Everyone at Crooked Media listens to the weeds. In fact, I need to admit something, which is when there's a complicated subject that we're going to talk about, I usually check to see if you guys have covered it first. And that's like my go-to uh, primary source. So this <laughs> wow, is, that's you a... know, this is a weird feeling. <laughs> that, that is that is what we aim for. So, you know, that we... also makes this episode a bit of a feedback loop where we're all just hurling into the void. It's an echo <laughs> no, we're going to figure something out. No, so when we first, you know, talked about doing this, I think we talked about trying to talk about uh, Trump and, and the press somewhat, which is an interesting subject. But is it? I thought there's been a an interesting spinoff has emerged ever since sure. uh, Jamal Khashoggi's death, which has outraged, I mean, lots of people, but especially journalists. We don't like it when journalists yeah. get murdered. Donald Trump seems no. kind of enthusiastic. <laughs> and Certainly uh, not as enraged or not even pretending to be as enraged as presidents typically are when dealing with both journalists being killed abroad and also U.S. permanent residents being killed abroad. Yeah. Ugh. And it it's not great. It seems to have produced a lot of anti-Saudi sentiment in Congress mm -hmm. from Democrats that has frankly surprised me because the U.S.-Saudi relationship is very longstanding. And I, I'm really interested, you know, as somebody who did this on the government side and is plugged into politics, like, Am I right? I mean, is the perception of the U.S.-Saudi relationship really changing a lot? I think so. I think that there's been an enormous change in the last three or four years, or at least, I mean, I don't think it's just Trump. I think a lot of it has to do with leadership changes within Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. dig into further. 
But then also, like, if you listen to Chris Murphy talk about Yemen, the senator from Connecticut, who right. has been really the leader on trying to cut off U.S. military support for the ongoing Saudi-led coalition war in Yemen, he just says, look, I have to believe my own eyes. We're witnessing horrific atrocities and a famine of a scale that I, I honestly can't believe. And so we have to act. He feels like he's been drawn to act by just the moral consequences of our contribution to what's happening. Right. I, I remember this being an issue in the sort of later years of, of Obama's presidency and it yes. being sort of a it's not that nobody was paying attention, but it was a little bit of a fringe thing. Chris Murphy was maybe up on his high horse about this. It really felt like the the mainstream in the American foreign policy community was squarely behind the Saudis and that that has, Oh, I totally agree. Right. And and that that didn't change because of Yemen. It's more that we are hearing more criticism around Yemen because of some kind of larger reevaluation, perhaps related to the leadership there. I think that's right. I mean, if you go, you know, if you go back to 2009, let's say, I would argue that uh, the U.S. support for Saudi Arabia wasn't just rock solid. It was very enthusiastic because, you know, if we're being honest, Barack Obama sold a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. I mean, there was a CRS report that said it was 94 billion. There was a, another think tank did a report that said it was 115 billion in weapon sales right. over the duration of the administration. So that's a ton of stuff. And a lot of that was aimed on building a regional security architecture to deal with Iran. And I think nothing focuses the attention of the blob and the foreign policy establishment within Washington, D.C., like mm -hmm. viewing every problem in the world through the prism of Iran. Like we love to hate on Iran and fund every problem accordingly. Now, over time, I think you saw a, a serious leadership change when Mohammed bin Salman took power. And, you know, before that, obviously, there was a, a well, let me step back a little bit. I mean, when the Iran deal was signed, that was, I think, a, a pretty significant rupture in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I also think that they would point to our refusal to back Mubarak come hell or high water during the Arab Spring as an inflection point for them when they started to wonder about Obama more than they previously had. So, I mean, the other thing that it seems that seems to be happening here, though, is yeah. a phenomenon by which, in general, issues are becoming partisan and the support for Saudi Arabia against Iran, it seems like, you know, the way you're describing it as of a decade ago, the quintessential Washington serious people bipartisan consensus on the level of mm -hmm. like balancing the budget or modernizing immigration or blah, 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 blah. And those things, those issues don't exist as bipartisan issues anymore, right? They're just, there are very mm -hmm. few things where you could imagine a Republican and a Democrat, even, you know, an unelected think tanker saying something identically, at, you know, with the same valence because those issues have just gotten annexed by one or both parties. And then this, the second part of that, obviously, is the election of, of Trump. It seems to me that in opposing Trump, Democrats have kind of been freed to say things that might not have been seen as within consensus. I mean, obviously, coming at this from immigration, this has been very obvious now that Democrats no longer have to, like, run the immigration enforcement apparatus and be responsible for it. But it seems to me that something similar might be true on Saudi Arabia, that it's not just about the kind of assessment on the merits of who deserves to be who deserves support, but also what people feel free to say. I think that's right. I definitely think that's right. I mean, thinking back again to the Arab Spring, let's take Egypt as an example. There was a decades long 
consensus foreign policy opinion that was just assumed to be the right one, which was that, you know, if you were a 70 year old Obama advisor sitting in the situation room telling him what you should do about Mubarak, the response was, well, Hosni and the boys were there for us in Gulf War One. And so we got to be with them now kind of thing. Right. And so the <laughs> the younger people who are in those rooms were like, what the hell? You know, these guys are cracking down on free speech. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of areas where our, our values uh, and our interests are no longer aligned. I think that realization with Saudi Arabia was slow. And I think, you know, if Mohammed bin Nayef uh, had continued to ascend into power, he, he is someone who right. was incredibly <laughs> close with, you know, the folks over at the Defense Department, uh, with John Brennan at the CIA the the deepest of the deep state. And, you know, he was someone who was, you know, very personally invested right. in the fight against AQAP. And I think that need to deal with al-Asiri, who is a bomb maker who lived in Yemen, who is one of the most dangerous, lethal people on the planet in terms of an al-Qaeda affiliate, tied us together pretty closely. And I know at the time from the meetings I personally was saying. in, the, the support between the Saudi <laughs> intelligence services and our folks was was very tight on those issues. And they tipped us off on serious, serious things that prevented, you know, airlines from being taken down or a package bomb from being delivered in the United States. But you're right. I mean, over time, Mohammed bin Salman ascends to power and he did a series of things and we can tick through them from, you know, kidnapping the prime minister of Lebanon, which is pretty weird, right, <laughs> uh, to... Um, Right. To, you know, the the blockade against Qatar that were just so obviously stupid foreign policy decisions that I think it did make it easier to speak out against them. And I think Trump and Jared Kushner's hug of those folks made it a partisan issue. I feel like in retrospect, it's very easy to say that. But when Mohammed bin Salman came to power, it seemed like it's he seemed like the latest yes. in a wave of modernizing young leaders in, you know, in the Middle East that the Thomas's Friedman of the world are like super big into, right? Like the visionaries that mm -hmm. are really going to lead the region forward. How much of that do you think right. is a reputation that got squandered versus, you know, you think that because the old hands in Washington never trusted him all that much, that wasn't really a mantle that he ever got, you know, within foreign policy circles here? Mm, good question. I mean, I, I think that that's one of those PR campaigns that the world just wants to believe so badly that we were willing to overlook some other things. You know, his broader point about, you know, the need to modernize their economy and invest in technology and, and non-oil producing companies was right and makes sense and is, I think, an existential issue for the Saudi government. His willingness to <laughs> make tiny little changes like letting women drive. I mean, it's not tiny for Saudi Arabia, but it's insane that we would even be debating that. I think it was something that was easy for him to sell. I do question how sincere he was. I, you know, I mean, when you lock all your relatives in the Ritz-Carlton and, and electrocute them until they give back a bunch of money, is it's that really a classic being a reformer? reformer, right? <laughs> yeah, like I, yeah. I, I think that that's totally on board with you know, a certain type of vanguardism, right? Well, okay. <laughs> like that you're going to make the country into what you want it to be at all costs. We should take a break here. But then I, I want to sort of step us back a little bit to the Iran deal, which I think plays an important role in the background of this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So, Tommy, you had mentioned this earlier, but but I think that if you sort of want to tell this story in retrospect, that you do have to look back at the Iran deal and some of the politicking around that. Because while I think the official line from the Obama administration about that was always that everything was fine and that we still had the alliance with Saudi Arabia and and it was all in place, I mean, the Saudi government was pretty clearly not happy with that deal. And in turn, there was an Mm. enormous amount of – you could hear a lot of frustration coming out of the White House, often sort of in an off-the-record-y kind of way, even while the – Above the line statements, you know, were kind of supportive. And and can you can you try to explain like why did the Obama administration and, and the Saudi government have such a different view of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the fact that the Saudis believe that Iran is their mortal enemy, and they felt like, uh, well, maybe the charitable explanation is they felt like the Iran deal wasn't tough enough. A less charitable explanation is that they wanted the United States to bomb Iran into oblivion, and that was the best outcome in their view, and they <laughs> they wanted to push us to that place. Right. But it's it wasn't just the Saudis who were pretty pissed off about the Iran deal. It, it was the United Arab Emirates and, and the UAE who, you know, they have a very sophisticated leadership. They have a sophisticated Washington lobbying structure. I think it brought the Saudis, the UAE, and the Israelis closer together in their mutual hatred for Iran uh, and hatred of the Iran deal, which led to a very 
powerful megaphone for countries that wanted to talk about how terrible it was and and to get into the ear of various members of Congress to tell them how naive and stupid and damaging the deal ultimately was. So, you know, I think that was a lot of the frustration. I think part of it, you know, I think Ben Rhodes has talked about this on the record in a number of places is there's a lot of Gulf money that goes into these big think tanks right. that crank mm-hmm. out policy papers and have conferences that talked about how destructive the Iran deal was. So, you know. Right. No, I mean, exactly. And so this sort of became at the time there was this sort of Cold War between the Obama administration and the Saudi UAE governments in which you were hearing sort of quietly from Gulf forces. They, they were talking to members of Congress. They were talking to their think tank people about what a betrayal mm-hmm. this was of American alliances. And then you were hearing, you know, from inside the administration about the sort of corrupting influence of Gulf money on these kinds of things and the simple fact that America's interests and Saudi interests may not be the same. But at the same time, like what you just said, like maybe the Saudis just want us to bomb Iran into oblivion, like that was not something that the president was saying at the time. It's not something that John Kerry was saying at the time, right? Because this is to me still – it's still the old world. Right. In which Democrats who wanted to support the president, who wanted to do this deal, who it seemed like were distancing the United States in certain substantive ways from the Saudi government, were not comfortable articulating that kind of break. Right. They were not Mm -hmm. using harsh language against them in their public official statements. And in fact, part Mm -hmm. of how we got into the material support for the Yemen war is precisely that they were trying to show Right. That we weren't abandoning the Gulf state. Yes, that's right. I mean, look, and just to clarify, I don't know that the Saudis wanted us to bomb Iran into the Stone Age. I suspect the Israelis did uh, because every six months, uh, you know, someone would get leaked a story about how they were the Israelis were six months away from bombing Iran's nuclear program (laughs) into oblivion. So it was a constant mood music for these discussions, unfortunately. The Israel dynamic is the other thing that kind of strikes me like. We have learned since Donald Trump came to power, though, did not know at the time that the Iran deal, you know, led Saudi to make these back channel attempts to reach out to Mm -hmm. the Israeli government, you know, to kind of team up a little bit against the Iran deal from, you know, those not being countries that typically have, you know, are partners for democracy in the region or anything like that. And so I do wonder if that has also changed the partisan valence in the U.S. of the Saudi-Israeli relationship, if you have, you know, the Trump administration coming in and not being told by the Saudis that, you know, Israel is the great Satan and not having the Israelis telling them that Saudi Arabia is just as bad as Iran in every meaningful sense for the Jewish people. I wonder if that has meant that their embrace of Saudi Arabia is maybe tighter because they don't have that strong countervailing, but we're also pro-Israel weight that would lead them to be more wary. I think that that is a really important question. Uh, and one that could get played out in the 2020 primary. I mean, if you if you step back for right. so Trump gets elected, he's run against the Iran deal as the worst thing in the world. He puts Jared Kushner in charge of foreign policy. And so, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed from the, the UAE is running around the United States telling everyone what a visionary Mohammed bin Salman is, MBS is. Uh, and they take both take Kushner under their wing. 
and they, you know, dangle their support for the Middle East peace talks. And they let Jared think he's going to be the one to broker a historic agreement and his name will be etched in history. And it's the same happy talk nonsense that diplomats have been sold for years, but he buys it. And then, you know, as time goes on, the Saudi war in Yemen just escalates and escalates and the humanitarian crisis spirals out of control. The GCC blockade happens and you have Trump tweeting, you know, the opposite of what a secretary of state is saying. You have the kidnapping of Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon. You have Mohammed bin Salman lashing out at the Canadians. So there's this like this series of escalatory events that happen. And so and then Khashoggi uh, is murdered. And I think that crystallizes everyone's focus on what's happening, not just in Saudi Arabia, but also in Yemen. And, you know, a, a credit to uh, Tyler Hicks and Declan Walsh from The New York Times, who took mm-hmm. this incredibly risky reporting trip into into Yemen to photograph uh, the humanitarian crisis that was happening on the ground. And it all just sort of bled together. I mean, I think that it didn't merely crystallize with Khashoggi's death that a lot of things that were kind of percolating in the background that were reasons for certain Americans to be concerned about Saudi Arabia's human rights record were allowed to be said publicly because journalists Mm -hmm. are generally super, super wary of seeming ideologically driven and talking about human rights uh, with U.S. allies is something that gets seen as an ideologically driven thing. But we're allowed to advocate for our material interests as journalists and not getting killed is one of those interests. So you absolutely (laughs) and, you know, some of this, I think, is kind of our, you know, egocentrism as a profession. But there was absolutely a journalist driven led by his former colleagues at The Post who have just been tremendous spokespeople and advocates for press freedom Mm -hmm. and accountability in his death um, in a much more kind of partial way than you would expect Washington Post journalists to be uh, and, you know, to their credit for not hand-wringing over that terribly much. But that kind of opened the floodgates a little bit, I think, to talk about some of the other, you know, it's not just that we're concerned that one of our colleagues was killed. We're also concerned about this ongoing war in Yemen. And by our colleagues, I mean like Mm -hmm. us as a profession more generally. It does strike me as, you know, there is still a question of whose lives matter, um, which, you know, some of the more tone-deaf criticisms that have been made by Republicans of the focus on Saudi Arabia is like journalists disappear all the time, which is a really terrible thing to say and shrug off, but is also not mm-hmm. wrong, right? Like the antagonists of the Saudi administration in this have really been the Turkish government, which does not have a great track record. But mm-hmm. there are also kind of much broader questions of when do human rights abuses matter when it's not journalists themselves who are being killed? Right. But I mean, it's a you great know, question. I mean, there was a sort of early version of this, right? It's like there was some from people who've been longtime critics saying, well, why are we all so fired up when they've been killing all these people in Yemen? But I think it has actually worked out in the sort of constructive way, right? That it, it has brought more attention to some kind of longer standing issues that were over there. But then at the same time, right, the the sense that Trump is up to something shady personally mm-hmm. also plays into this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it turns it into a partisan political issue that like rank and file Democrats can care about, right? And the question mm-hmm. of, you know, like Gulf money has kind of been bouncing around a little bit below the radar screen. But now we have a president. He just like has these hotels. Saudis pay him thousands of dollars for. (laughs) I mean, it it seems like a much more 
you know, this is this is like an issue that you could explain to somebody in five minutes in a way that the kind of like sub Rosa influence of a think tank network you probably can't. That's a really good point. And frankly, so much of the last two years has, for me, has been a frustration that every time it seems like I say, oh, don't assume the most conspiratorial explanation for things. We don't know that that's true. We, you know, we should wait and see if we have all the facts. Here is a less, you know, a a more Hanlon's razor-esque, like more incompetence than malice explanation that also makes sense. So many of those times the conspiratorial conclusion has been right. And this is yet another example of that. Like, oh, maybe it actually isn't about a realignment of regional interests or anything like that. Maybe it really just is that there's a hotel quid pro quo here and that Donald Trump thinks that the Saudis are good hotel customers. And that mm-hmm. makes all of our jobs totally, totally useless. <laughs> no, they are not used. I mean, what's the awful Stalin quote? One death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, yes. right? I mean, the Khashoggi murder was so brazen, was so gruesome, was so well documented, was so ham handedly pulled off that it could not help but capture our attention. And then to your earlier point about the Washington Post staff, I mean, Karen Atia, Jamal Khashoggi's editor at the Post, is a force of nature. And she has done an unbelievable job, along with many of her colleagues, of keeping the story in the news and keeping his words alive and, you know, making them the worst thing, making his death the worst thing that ever happened to Mohammed bin Salman, potentially. But then, you know, on top of that, to your corruption, Occam's razor point, I mean, the Washington Post, again, uh, reported a story about the Saudi lobbyists paying for 500 rooms at the Trump Hotel where they tricked veterans into lobbying against, you know, a bill they didn't really understand or know about. So there's a lot of stories that are that are, I think, able to shock the conscience even still in this Trump era that do drive you to the most obvious corruption point and that there there must be something happening in terms of Trump's real estate holdings in Saudi Arabia. There must be something strange happening with Jared, or at least it's worth exploring. Right. And it is fascinating. I mean, you pointed to this before, right? But Kushner's sort of elevation and this portfolio being handed over to him, it's just odd. Like, it's incredibly odd because, specifically because the United States and Saudi Arabia have had a good longstanding relationship, like on a real intergovernmental Mm -hmm. level where professional diplomats and counterterrorism people and military officers on both sides have strong long-term relationships with each other. It doesn't seem at all like the kind of situation that in any way called for a like weird personal envoy with no background in the matter, right? I mean, because these things do happen in diplomacy, right? It's like sometimes you need to like send someone on a secret mission. But like the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are allies for decades, right? There's so much weird stuff happens with Donald Trump, but a lot of it is just like weird tweets. But this was like an actual policy decision and it looks so, so odd. And then conversely, some of the Saudi turn – and I want to make sure we can explain some of the the background here. But clearly part Mm -hmm. of how the Khashoggi thing became such a big story was the actions of the Turkish government. And that has to do with – some of the changes that's happening between Saudi Arabia and its neighbors there. And I'm hoping, Tommy, can you help explain to our audience, like, like what was going on with Qatar <laughs> and, and Turkey and, like, that whole nexus of, of oddity? So, I mean, it, w- with respect to Qatar, I mean, one morning I think we all woke up and the uh, the Saudis decided – that they wanted to organize a GCC country, a bunch of Gulf countries to blockade 
the Qatari government. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact sequencing of how it all played out. But I believe Donald Trump tweeted in support of the blockade, but didn't realize that we had a whole bunch of troops in Qatar in the region. And then the State Department contradicted him shortly after. And it was just a huge mess. And then with respect to the Turkey angle, I mean, I think they have long, Erdogan and the Saudis have long had a fraught frenemy uh, relationship. Uh, some of it, I think, is about primacy in the region. But, you know, they decided uh, for whatever reason not to smooth over the horrific killing of Jamal Khashoggi and not to sweep it under the rug, but to be as public as, as humanly possible and just lay out all these facts, which, you know, I think that actually surprised a lot of people that they would be that public about the discord between the two countries. Right, because, I mean, it's it's not as if Erdogan has like a super principled objection to mistreating of journalists, right? Like it's a it's no. a foreign policy move on his part, not just a kind of we have to take this stand. Yes, that, that's exactly right. It's he is not a particularly principled individual. So I do kind of want to go back to what you know, Matt was saying about the professional level partnership between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, because it strikes me that the U.S.-Saudi relationship has now become partisanized in a way that it's not going to be super easy to take back. So I wonder if the kind of routine counterterrorism stuff, the other things that, you know, at the professional level have been allowed to continue above and beyond, you know, Jared Kushner appelling around with MBS because the Trump administration is pro-Saudi might actually get tripped up a little bit if after 2020 or 2024 or whatever, you have a Democrat coming into office who has run in part on we need to be less reliant on Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. Hmm. Good question. I think if the next president is a Democrat, the people who work on the, the Saudi desk at the CIA are going to brief him or her and say, this is all the information we get from the Saudis. This is the way they help us against AQAP, et cetera, et cetera. And that intel to intel relationship is likely to continue in a very similar fashion, for better or for worse. I think the place you could see a real difference is on arms sales, because that's where Congress can actually step in and, and do something about it. And, you know, I think when Chris Murphy started this, it was a fairly lonely effort to cut off arms sales to Saudi. I think he maybe got 15 votes. Mm -hmm. uh, now the Senate just voted 63-37 in favor of advancing a measure that would cut off U.S. military support for that coalition. But, you know, interestingly, Mike Lee supported it. I, I think Senator Lindsey Graham has been very strong uh, in his opposition to Mohammed bin Salman or any relationship with the Saudi government that includes Mohammed bin Salman. So, I mean, one other play here could be that we are in some ways trying to create a public coup where King Salman before his death replaces MBS as the crown prince. I mean, that that is another possible path here. I don't know that that's a good one, a bad one. It sounds a little, uh, you know, CIA in Latin America in the 80s to me, but what, sure. what do I know? We should take another break. But I then want to ask a little bit more about what the Democratic alternative is. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. So 
it strikes me that there are a lot of different directions that a Democrat who might be gearing up for a presidential run in 2020 might want to take in terms of, you know, what all of this means for running against Trump on foreign policy. You know, you could take it as a this shows we were right all all along with the Iran deal, um, which seems like a pretty safe game to play. You, You could also, though, go back to kind of the human rights centric 20th century liberal internationalist rhetoric that has gotten a little bit that I think both parties have been a little wary of in talking about the importance of, you know, robustly defending human rights and making alliances Mm -hmm. based on whether other regimes support, you know, our ideals and that kind of thing. There are also, I'm, I'm sure, like a gajillion other directions that you could go in. But what do you think You know, if you're looking at the landscape right now and trying to figure out how to articulate the Democratic alternative to Trump, what are you guys thinking about? That's a great question. Uh, Okay, so when I think about the many ways I disagree with with President Trump on issues, I mean, I do think you're right that every single president on the Democratic side or presidential candidate should be calling for us to get back into the Iran deal, to get back into the Paris Climate Accords. Like, So there's some obvious, you know, one-offs that you will just run on. But more broadly, I do think that you could organize people around his human rights record. And I think that's clearly true in Yemen. But it's also true, you know, the Chinese have, the State Department said that the Chinese have put 800,000 to a couple million Uyghurs uh, into internment camps because of their religion. That is a human rights issue that is unbelievable. That No one's talking about it. It is this massive, it's it's against our values. It is brings up some of the darkest chapters of our history. It's something that's horrific that we should be talking about. And I think you could motivate people around it. You had a genocide happening in, in Burma when where a bunch of Rohingya were pushed over the border from Burma into Bangladesh. And I like it is one of the most horrific things that's happened in recent history. So I, I mentioned those awful events as a way to say, I think you could organize people and really you know, excite them around a a plan to increase diplomacy to really tackle these issues and re-engage in the world and actually show communities across the globe that we care about them again. Because one thing we know people care about in polling is when the U.S. doesn't seem respected in the world uh, and when we look like a joke and when we look like, you know, people are, are embarrassed by our actions. And I think you could actually marshal a coalition, especially of young people who do care, like millennials actually care about the, the world around them uh, and get them fired up about it. I mean, those are discrete things. They're very far away. But I think about them all the time because they are like great issues of our time that no one is talking. About. Right. So when I have started to hear Democrats talking more about Saudi Arabia, talking in a more critical vein about it, the thing that strikes me that's going to get politically dicey is when the sort of Saudi Arabia bone is connected to the Israel bone, it it seems to me, in terms of regional politics, right? And you've Mm -hmm. had the Netanyahu government sort of signaling their – even saying they're like, yeah, we would like throw in and help out with this this Yemen war, right? And this seems to be what MBS is trying to sell Kushner and Trump on is that like he is going to agree to some kind of – I don't know what, some kind of one-sided peace thing where he sells out the Palestinians or or something and and, and makes it all Mm -hmm. work. And as long as you have that very tight alignment between Israel and Saudi Arabia in their perspective on the region, it's it's hard, 
it seems to me politically to like really beat up on the Saudi leaders without getting into a more challenging kind of political topic for Democrats. In 2008, I would have said, you're right. Uh-huh. And that would have been the end of the sentence. Uh, <laughs> I think Bibi Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu never fails to uh, screw himself in the long term for short term political gain. And I think the way he politicized his relationship with Barack Obama has really changed the way a lot of Democrats view their support for him. And I worry, I worry for the state of Israel that it will translate to support for the country because I believe as a nation, uh, there are infinite number of reasons for us to support a democratic Israel. Uh, You know, they are a close ally and a friend, but Netanyahu has politicized the relationship. I mean, never forget that he came and gave a joint speech before Congress where he criticized Obama and criticized the Iran deal. So, uh, you know, I wonder what we're going to see Democrats saying on Israel policy in uh, in this next cycle. I mean, you have some new members of Congress who are saying they're going to forego the traditional APAC trip uh, and instead go to the West Bank. Um, the 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 BDS movement, which is not something I support, but I, I think you're hearing about more and more and more and is gaining some currency. So I would be a little nervous uh, about the legacy and future of the bipartisan U.S. support for Israel. It feels like it has been politicized. It, it, the full bear hug of Trump could be a real problem in the long term. Because you're saying essentially Netanyahu was so overtly intervening against Obama. Right. Like, to be the, clear, just, like accepting an invitation from John Boehner to speak before the Republican Congress without meeting with Obama, right? Well, right. So like, it was yeah. – so it was like – the Obama administration did some things that Netanyahu did not agree with but did not fundamentally alter the U.S.-Israel relationship in any way. But Netanyahu went in in a very heavy-handed way and that can make you think if you're a Democrat, look, whatever the political downside to being in a fight with Israel is, we're sort of like we're underwater on that anyway. So like what what is there to be afraid of? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so early on, uh, the, the U.S. support for Israel, when you look at military support, never wavered. I mean, it was record levels of, of U.S. support for Israel's military. On top of that, time and again, Obama and Congress would go and fund additional military projects that had proven to be really effective, like the Iron Dome uh, missile defense system, which was really extraordinary in terms of keeping short range rockets from landing on Israeli cities. Like we funded that at, you know, half a billion dollars over that support where Obama and Netanyahu first started to beef was over settlements. And it's really, it's been funny. I mean, I looked back at a bunch of stories about George HW Bush's record. And if Obama had had George H.W. Bush's policies vis-a-vis Israel, he would have been called the most anti-Israel president in history. Uh, and it just showed you how how far the relationship had changed or gone since that period of time. I mean, Bush was not only critical of settlements. Jim Baker famously said the White House phone number is 202-456-1414. Call us when you're serious about negotiations. But he yes. also considered cutting off loan guarantees to Israel, which you know, I don't think anyone would propose in this day and age. Right. So, so, well, I mean, that, that that's exactly my point, right? So, I mean, there were serious disagreements between Obama and Netanyahu, but in the scheme of things, the Obama administration was very supportive in concrete ways, and it didn't seem yes. to it didn't seem to buy them any credit, 
with Netanyahu. It got us nothing. Right. No, got got us nothing. I mean, look, Netanyahu is a, a right wing Republican, basically. Uh, he's for a guy from Philly. So he is he doesn't like Obama. You know, his his team didn't like us. His ambassador to the U.S. was constantly leaking stories about us in the in the U.S. media about how bad it was. I mean, the fundamental problem early on was all over settlements and trying to force the Israelis into a meaningful conversation uh, and a real peace process. Now, the Palestinians were enormously recalcitrant and difficult to deal with and, and a whole other problem. But, you know, I, I would say that from in a negotiation, I first look to the people who have most of the power and leverage, and that would have been the Israeli side, and it was hard to get them to go forward. Once we got into the Iran deal, that's when things got really ugly. Obviously, there's an important question of substance, right? But like from a political point of view, I think, you know, mo- most people in Congress – most people in politics, frankly, like don't necessarily care that much about foreign policy. But you don't want to do things Agreed. that become like huge political disasters for you. But if it turns you out, you even call it the "don't do stupid shit." Sure, right. <laughs> but I mean, if it turns out that all your military aid and your iron domes and all this stuff, you know, UN vetoes, if that doesn't stop like the leader of a foreign country and his domestic allies from relentlessly attacking you, then it just starts to look like a not so appealing course of action necessarily, right? I mean, and that's yeah. not the same yes. as there's a handful of new members who seem highly motivated on the Palestinian rights side of this. But mm-hmm. then for the sort of broad massive of people, you must be looking at the past 10 years and just kind of saying, look, like if the people who run Israel are going to just try to help Republicans win elections no matter what we do, then we need to rethink our thinking about it. So here is my question in terms of intra-democratic politics, though, intra-democratic party politics, rather. The best kind. Uh, It seems to me that this is one of those issues where even though everything, Matt, you've just laid out with regards to people who think about stuff a lot might be true, there are a lot of people who don't follow foreign policy a lot that closely, (laughs) don't really think they have super strong thoughts on Israel-Palestine, but who kind of tacitly accept that, of course, it's important for the U.S. to support Israel and think of people who are critical of Israel as being fringy kind of definitionally, if those mm-hmm. – if that part of the Democratic Party is going to react badly or, you know, if if putative swing voters would react badly because they associate taking anything less than a wholehearted support for Israel stance as – you know, the, with being the kind of code pink fringe that they – think a lot of progressives are, but don't think, you know, really represents the mainstream of America. Mm -hmm. That's a good, I mean, look, I I do think a lot of members of Congress come to Congress and they're suddenly asked to have positions on things that they never thought about once in their life. And some staffer Googles, what is the standard platform on U.S.-Israel relations? And you get handed that and that's what you then believe. Um, The interesting thing I think about a a Democratic uh, presidential year is the people who will be going to caucuses in Iowa are incredibly well-informed, and they tend to lean pretty far left. And there is a strong chance, I think, I'm guessing, but I think that you could see some pressure to abandon that purely traditional relationship, to talk more about forcing the Israelis into a peace process or support for Palestinian rights. And that's where, you know, ideas, as you know, start to gain a lot more currency and get elevated, like, you know, the reason we're talking about ethanol all the time, right? Right. It comes out of <laughs> well, and, and specifically, right, I mean, to, to name names, like, Bernie Sanders has blazed a somewhat different trail on this topic than 
you've traditionally heard from politicians. And also he is Jewish himself, which gives him Mm -hmm. a certain kind of leeway and standing uh, that other people may not have. And it it strikes me, I mean, we were talking, Darren and I and, and some other reporters here to some people from the Democratic foreign policy world and they were they were painting a very rosy picture of party unity on on national security issues which i think definitely holds on some subjects it may very but- well hold in late 2018 when no one has really no one serious has officially said they're running for president right but mm-hmm. it, it it seems to me that we should be anticipating a potentially quite explosive even debate on on this question of of Israel and, and America's role in the Middle East. I, I, I mean, I wonder what you think if we don't about. have – I mean it, it seems that there are two options. One is that we have that debate and the other is that we don't have that debate because it's not getting discussed, um, right. which then could result in intra-party ruptures either during the general election or after a Democratic candidate wins. Yeah. I mean you're, you're – Bernie is a very interesting case here because he has said he has said on the record that he's not a big fan uh, of Bibi Netanyahu. He has questioned whether why we are pouring so much military aid uh, into Israel. He's vowed to be more even handed in dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he's also, you know, he's he's condemned Israel in pretty emotional terms for the civilian deaths in Gaza. And and if he stood up on a stage in a primary state and started making that case, I imagine that it would be received pretty well in from a, a liberal Democratic primary audience and making the counterpoint is going to be tough. It's it just it always is. Uh, you know, it was like all the people on stage in 2007 who were left trying to explain or defend why the Iraq war was the right decision when Barack Obama could say, you know, let's get out. It was wrong to begin with. No, I'm not. I'm not comparing the two things in any way. I'm just remembering back to a to a the, one of the few foreign policy debates we had at the time. Sure, right. I mean, it's sort of. I think it's always uncomfortable to be making the the sort of more moderate argument in a primary context like that, and and in particular on on this issue, it. It strikes me as almost comparable to Trump and trade in the 2016 Mm. Republican primary where there had just long been this kind of gap between what a lot of Republican voters thought and what the consensus in the party was. And I feel like Mm -hmm. Democrats have a professional consensus around the U.S. And, and its its role in, in that region of the world that probably does not reflect a lot of grassroots engagement, but there hasn't been a sort of uh, an option, like, like a voice or an, an overt kind of disagreement about these things. That's a really interesting point, because if, if you read Elizabeth Warren's recent, I assume, sort of foreign policy speech to lay the groundwork for yeah. 2020, it was really a trade speech. Right. Uh, she talked about uh, you know, income inequality as sort of the, the key driver of not just challenges domestically but abroad. And she came out hard against Trump's NAFTA 2.0 uh, and really you know, laid down a set of terms about all the things we need to meaningfully do on trade. I, I think you're right that she is going to elevate and eviscerate traditional stances on trade if she decides to run. Yeah, absolutely. I think with that, we've got to wrap this episode up. Thank you so much, Tommy Buter, for joining us. Thanks to all of the listeners out there. Thanks to uh, Sonia Herrero for uh, being our engineer here on this episode. And uh, the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Can't 
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.